This episode is brought to you in part by Zondervan, publisher of The Perilous Fight, Overcoming Our Culture's War on the American Family, written and narrated by retired neurosurgeon and politician Dr. Ben Carson. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks. Dynamic Voices for a Diverse Church. This is Pass the Mic. Hello and welcome to a special live edition of Pass the Mic here on Martin Luther King Jr.'s holiday in 2018. Naturally, we wanted to bring on an expert to speak with us. So we have as our guest today, Reverend Dr. Micah Edmondson. That, that, that first couple of titles sounds a lot like Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, we have on, on with us Reverend Dr. Micah Edmondson, uh, who is a pastor in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and also a scholar of King's theology, particularly his theology of suffering. You've been on the show before, so welcome back, Dr. Edmondson. Thanks a lot, Jamar. It's a real honor and a privilege to be here on on uh, on this wonderful uh, day. It's a day on, not a day off. You know that's right. You know that's right. I I, I was just reflecting that for folks who uh, talk about race and and religion and and things like that, that the holiday is often one of the busiest days for us. Right. That's exactly right. Yeah. It's uh, it's been it's been a it's been quite a day already for me. But I, I'm grateful, man, um, that we have this opportunity to really reflect on on King's life and legacy, and the, really the way in which it points to the triumph of our God and his grace and his justice. So, uh, right. so yeah, what, right. a, what a great day. Well, look, I see you wearing all black today. <laughs> That's right, man. <laughs> <laughs> I'm in all black, a little, little bit of hint of gray, too. That was not a conscious decision on my part, but it seems appropriate. Seems yeah, appropriate. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, Brother Micah, I wanted to handle this as what I call a 401 level conversation as opposed to a 101 level conversation. And so if you're listening now, what I'm assuming is that you've got some familiarity with Dr. King already, some familiarity with his biography and his activism. And so what we want to dive into is the real Dr. Martin Luther King, Um, the king that we don't often hear about in national news media or, or in our schools, in the history books. And so I want to talk about everything from his uh, moral character and maybe particular failings, his theological influences, uh, the way we've misunderstood King, and maybe the ways that we can still learn from King uh, for activism today. And so to get started, just tell us, you know, a little bit a bit, a little bit about your research into Dr. King and what you were particularly focused on studying in terms of his life and, and thought. Okay, great. Uh, great question. So, uh, yeah, so in terms of uh, my particular emphasis on King, uh, I'm studying his, and I, I wrote a dissertation and published a book on King's uh, theology of suffering, uh, what is commonly known as his theodicy, uh, his approach to the classic problem of evil and suffering. And so uh, that's a problem that basically um, is one of the most uh, difficult issues to resolve in, in theology. It basically says um, that uh, uh, you know, God is good uh, and God is powerful. And so um, why do we suffer? Right. If God is good. It means that God would not want us to suffer. God is powerful, meaning that God uh, has the power to intervene and prevent our suffering. So how do we account for the kind of suffering that we see? And this is a very old problem, an issue that uh, African-Americans uh, have been uh, 
struggling with, wrestling with um, since we landed on these shores. Um, and so um, uh, King uh, inherited a 250-year-old redemptive suffering theodical tradition, yes. um, and uh, which was handed down to him through uh, through spirituals and uh, through slave narratives and uh, and various other sources and uh, and basically he took that um that theodical tradition and he appropriated it to the black social situation and it really ground and to direct uh the civil rights movement of the 50s and 60s yes and i think it's very important that you brought up you know king didn't invent this theology right this, uh, philosophy of of activism either and so uh you know he's drawing on the black church tradition and uh their view of suffering um, what would you say to those uh, who that I, I see many folks who say say that the black situation in America was God's will? and don't try to don't try to turns out eliminate with the situation. Um, mm-hmm. Say that that uh, slavery and and Jim Crow segregation and all the ills that have come about were God's will because it brought about conversion, right? Because a lot of people are saying, well, hey, this is, in the end, God used it for good because many people were converted to Christianity. Um, they're, they're pushing back against that. So how, how would you respond to those kind of critics? Okay, great question, brother. Great question. So a lot, so this is uh, oftentimes um, uh, the kind of sticking point for people when it comes to King's theodicy, right? Uh, the the, the um, belief that, uh, well, you must be uh, saying that suffering itself is a good, or you must be glorifying violence, or perhaps inculcating a kind of a dangerous martyr mentality amongst uh, victims. Um, but but actually, um, King never said that suffering itself was a good. What King promoted was faithful engagement with the suffering that already exists. And he said that that kind of engagement could actually, uh, the Lord could work through that engagement to bring about a redemptive outcome. Okay, and so again, uh, it's not it's not the the suffering itself, it's not the violence itself, but in the midst of a situation of violence, the Lord has given His people the resources and the faith and the hope to be able to engage every situation uh, toward a redemptive outcome. What that means basically is that uh, is that God's justice and God's redemption and God's victory will have the final say in every situation. Uh, we're not. Uh, although um, we don't want to deny um, the, the the pain and the anguish and the evil of suffering, um, uh, we don't want to deny that that we are victims. Ultimately, um, our victimization does not have the final say over our identity. Um, you got to think about this. Uh, ultimately, in every situation, we are agents of God's uh, redemptive, sovereign uh, uh, purposes, and He has preserved our ability to be able to engage even the worst of suffering in redemptive ways. Good word. That's a good word. So, I mean, would you say God used evil for good in a, in a, in a you know, a, a Genesis uh, Joseph kind of way? Yeah. Well, yeah, I would say, I mean, I would say, uh, right, right. I would say that God uh, uh, certainly in every situation, uh, God remains sovereign over our suffering, okay? And it doesn't mean that God ever smiles on our suffering, right? Uh, in mm-hmm. fact, God hates the evil that have, that's perpetrated against us even more than we do, 
right? God, God, God grieves that evil and hates that evil. And in fact, sent his son to destroy the works of the devil, to destroy that kind of evil. And so, and so we want, we'd never want to say um, that God ever smiled on, uh, on the slave trade or God ever smiled on, on the, the centuries of suffering um, and the brutality um, um, that has been perpetuated against uh, African-Americans and marginalized people, indigenous people uh, on these shores. We never want to say that. We don't, we don't even want to, uh, imply that. What we want to say is that in the face of great sin and evil and suffering, the Lord has given his people the resources to overcome, right, and to survive. And 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 uh, and actually uh, has given his people resources to be a witness that could actually heal the land of this kind of injustice. I like how you use that word witness. Yeah, all Amen. Right, <laughs> All right, brother. <laughs> now let's get into it. Um, you are a pastor in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. Um, so, so you're LPC pastor. Um, uh, you, you talk a lot about the Westminster Confession of Faith. So your theology, you've thought through it in, in careful detail. It's been articulated in careful detail. Um, point From that standpoint, uh, what aspects of King's theology might trouble you. Mm, okay, that's a good question. Um, so, I would say. Um, so, I think King uh, King's kind of uh, vision of the beloved community. Okay, I don't think really um, focus. It wasn't. It wasn't. It wasn't. Um, it, it didn't take into account the unique work of the church. Okay, it, it understood. Uh, that the church um, was key in, in in promoting the gospel and, and declaring the gospel, but it but oftentimes, I mean, he he, you know, there was times in which he referred to, for instance, Gandhi as a, as a saint, you know, um, and 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 part of that was because he uh, he had a sense that this beloved community had a claim over all of reality, both both Christians and non Christians. And what I would say uh, in distinction, in, in contradistinction to what King understood about that, is that uh, certainly the Lord has given us um, a vision of the future. This eschatological vision that is laid out um, so beautifully in passages uh, like Micah chapter four, uh, Isaiah chapter two. Um, you know, people may be familiar with the kind of imagery of people beating uh, swords into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks. And uh, uh, you know images uh, in, in Amos, and uh, you know, and justice rolling down like waters, and, and this, that, and the other. And so we're familiar with that, and 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 that kind of vision really grips us. It grips our today, and it actually compels us and strengthens us to continue fighting on for uh, for justice in this land and justice where we are. Um, but uh, but the, but I would say that the church has has uh, is in, in many ways a kind of a unique possessor of that kind of eschatological vision. And the gospel of Jesus Christ is a kind of a, a, a kind of the unique um, seed and, encapsul- and and it sort of uniquely encapsulates that kind of vision so that um, so that we, you know, so 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 King, you know, in, in many ways, was kind of an es- eschatological inclusivist, um, <laughs> which is, you know, uh, broaden that out to um, include people of other even other faiths and religions. I would say that Jesus Christ uh, is the unique, not only example, 
but also the unique power and the unique end uh, of that kind of uh, beloved community. He himself, through his resurrection, has actually uh, 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 is the first fruits of the triumph of justice. Mm-hmm. So you would highlight the unique role of the church in transforming society. And you would say that King kind of broadened that out. And uh, he was assuming the role of the church, but he didn't necessarily articulate that as, as clearly as you just have. Exactly right. And, 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 and in some ways, perhaps he had uh, what we might say, what we might call perhaps a, a bit of an overrealized eschatology, uh, a sense of um, um, that what we're really striving for and hoping for uh, uh, might very well be realized today rather than at the coming of Christ himself. Right. Uh, you know, uh, so, you know, so I would say I don't want to downplay what is possible today. OK, because I don't mm-hmm. want to disparage the ministry of the Holy Spirit amongst us right now. Right. Right. Uh, but at the same time, I want to say we want I believe we want to say that uh, this great eschatological vision uh, does make a claim on us. But it makes a claim on us that is so, that is somewhat proleptic, proleptic, meaning that it's anticipatory. It, uh, it 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 reaches from the not get into our already and guides the way we behave and 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 undertake our journey in this life uh, with a view toward tomorrow. Uh, brothers and sisters, if you missed my disclaimer at the beginning, I said we we're gonna have a four hundred level four hundred one level conversation, and so when a brother uses proleptic, uh, you, <laughs> you know you better have the prerequisites already in the bag. <laughs> That's wonderful. No, we need to get into this theology. I mean, it sounds almost like, you know, with 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 this overrealized eschatology, it sounds almost kind of post-millennial uh, kind of view. I'm not sure if yeah. King came out that way. And he did. He, he did. Okay. I, I think he. Uh, but although it's interesting, I mean, this is where you see the kind of um, the kind of internal struggle with, with King, uh, because uh, King had. Um, you know, he was he was in he was in liberal circles. And, and, and in that day, I mean, you know, liberals were really stuck on this kind of postmillennial uh, outlook. Right. That uh, humanity can, through its own ingenuity, kind of uh, eventually sort of realize the best of its virtues and, and, and this kind of moral vision. And uh, and that Christ in his coming would sort of be the capstone of this, you know. And um, now here's the thing. As an African-American from the segregated South. OK. King understood uh, total depravity. Okay, he understood the limits of human striving and virtue and benevolence because he was faced uh, with human uh, wickedness and sin and injustice and oppression every single day. Right. So, and and that had been the history of African Americans in this country, Indigenous people in this country, and other marginalized people in this country. So King could not easily deny. Uh, the prevalence um, and the and the depth of sin amongst us. Was King a social gospeler in the tradition of, say, a, a Walter Rauschenbusch, or were there differences? There were differences. Um, uh, Walter Rauschenbusch um, actually um, he linked his uh, social gospel vision uh, with uh, certain political parties and with a kind of a uh, kind of uh, to de- a, a kind of um, um, he kind of connected it very strongly with certain forms of government. Okay, and what King basically refused to do was was to directly identify um, uh, the, the the beloved community and its eschatological vision with any particular form of government or any particular political party today. 
And uh. So, uh, and then also, uh, again, you know, uh, Rauschenbusch uh, kind of was a progressivist, you know, and he, he thought that we could have, if we just kind of mustered up our strength and, you know, uh, we could get there. And, and King, although he was um, very optimistic and hopeful about this kind of, uh, about what we could achieve, uh, he had his vision sort of set on something uh, on the other side, you know, and you, you hear that in his final speech, actually, mm. that when he talked about, um, you know, I might not get there with you. Right. But we as a people will get to the promised land. Wow. That's a good word. Now, let's talk about King and evangelism. So in his speeches, in his writings, you don't necessarily hear a traditional call to conversion, uh, telling people to, you know, repent and believe in Jesus Christ necessarily. Now, now you can correct me. And, and if I miss something, let me know. Uh, but let's talk about, you know, in what sense was Martin Luther King Jr. an evangelist or, or was he not? Was he not concerned about that? Great question, brother. So here's the thing. Um, I would say that we get a particular emphasis in King's life. OK, now you got to keep in mind that what is most what people are most familiar with really is just 13 years of his life. I mean, 13 years of his public ministry. That's right. That's right. You got to keep in mind that he grew up at Ebenezer Baptist Church uh, under the ministry of Daddy King. Um, and, and Daddy King was a very was a traditional black Baptist preacher um, that 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 strongly emphasized evangelism and conversion. And so and and, and King himself uh, coming up in in that uh, in that stream and in that tradition, uh, uh, you know, I'll just put it this way. So King functioned, uh, he, you know, he first pastor is at Dexter Avenue Baptist Church in Montgomery, Alabama. He pastored there. Uh, from 1954, roughly to about 1960. And so he had about five, six years of pastoral ministry, being a senior pastor. And then he went back to Ebenezer Baptist Church and functioned within that traditional black Baptist setting. OK, and, and not just that, he was over Christian education. OK, he's, when he went, goes back to Ebenezer, his father places him over Christian education in order to teach, the, uh, in order to teach the congregants um, uh, biblical orthodoxy. And 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 the, and the essentials of our faith, and mm. so you know uh, he would not have been able to function in that traditional setting unless he believed um, uh, in 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 conversion and in salvation and in justification and in kind of uh, the kind of traditional understandings that we have of of, of salvation in Christ. So uh, so King uh, so. So, you, so you, you know, so most people, you know, they listen to his speeches, they listen to these kinds of things and, and, and sermons that are particularly addressing the particular black social situation. But you can find uh, you can find uh, some examples of King actually sort of making a particular distinction and saying, well, today I'm going to talk about social justice and I'm not going to talk about, um, you know, the kind of traditional understanding of the gospel. I'm going to talk about social justice. So, so King kind of. You know, he understood that, um, you know, um, that the gospel has a great claim on social justice and social issues. Uh, but he never sort of repudiated the gospel or repudiated the traditional understanding or repudiated the fact that we that we need to be saved and that we're on our way to glory uh, to see Christ. He, he never repudiated that. And yet he worked with a broad array of people from a religious perspective. Right. Yeah. So. 
So he's learning from uh, folks like Gandhi and, and, and the tradition of nonviolence. He's working with uh, many Jewish people. He's working even with unbelievers in terms of his activism and whatnot. Uh, I think many Christians today would sort of kind of freeze up at that and say, well, if it's not a Christian group or organization, mm-hmm. can I really get down with it? That's a great point, brother. But like, keep in mind that King made it very clear. Uh, and he said it this way. He said, I got my doctrine from Jesus, but I got my methodology from Gandhi. And so uh, so so King's approach to nonviolence. So it's interesting. If you go and you look at the the autobiography of, of Gandhi himself, Gandhi says that he got nonviolence from the Sermon on the Mount. So he got this from Jesus. OK, <laughs> he applies it to his social situation in India. OK. And King was already committed to nonviolence. And uh, when he sees that it can work on a social level and not just on an interpersonal level, when he sees Gandhi applied in India, he realizes, oh, this can work on a social level as well. And so he and so he gets his methodology from Gandhi, not his not his theology or his doctrine. So um, so, you know, his theology and his doctrine he got from the Black Baptist Church tradition. So. I mean, how would in our modern day, how would you advise that we sort of navigate that? Say we're interested in a particular cause, whether criminal justice reform or immigration reform or something of that nature, that we as Christians see it as an outgrowth of our faith. Um, How do we navigate who we should work with or who we should avoid working with when it comes to folks of different faith traditions or no uh, professed tradition at all? Well, here's the thing. Uh, all All truth is God's truth. Right. <laughs> I, recognize, I just think we have to admit that and just confess that. And say, look, if it's if it if it's noble, if it's good, if it's virtuous, then then God is at work. Okay. And we've got to recognize that and we gotta just be uh clear about admitting that. If we don't do that, uh then uh you know it becomes you know, we we um we find ourselves uh actually um neglecting to come alongside and to promote the work that our Lord is doing out in the world already. Okay. So we find that, so we, you know, we recognize that when we go out into the world and we fight for justice, man, the Lord is already there. Okay. He's already, uh, he's already at work. Okay. What we're doing is coming alongside and actually being an instrument and tools and vessels uh, to come alongside and accentuate and highlight what he's already at work doing. Okay. Now people that don't have a strong understanding of common grace, right. That, um, that the Lord is kind and merciful to all his creatures, right? That God calls it to rain on the just and the unjust. Okay. That, that God, that God can give, uh, can God can give sense to a donkey, right? God can, <laughs> God can do what God wants to do. Right. And, um, and, and insofar again, as we see, you know, folks, um, doing, um, you know, fighting for justice and fighting for truth and fighting for, um, you know, compassion and, and speaking up for, uh, the marginalized, then those are efforts that we uh, that we would be remiss if we didn't come alongside and get involved with. Um, so, yeah. So for a one level conversation, uh, a lot of us are familiar with the pushback and uh, the resistance from who we might term religious conservatives or, or white evangelicals. What's some of the resistance to King from the left or progressives, uh, whether Christian or non-Christian? Right. Uh, I mean, you know, I'm getting getting to the fact that, you know, maybe some people thought he, he wasn't radical enough or uh, maybe his faith would have been an issue uh, with these folks. Can you speak right. a little bit to the pushback he gets from the other side of the spectrum? Oh, exactly right. OK, great, great question. So. So, yeah. So um, 
So King, uh, you know, he was pressed on many sides in terms of uh, a resistance, right? So you had some people that weren't involved in the movement at all, uh, the, what we might call a passive or acquiescent crowd, um, and, uh, and folks that were kind of resistant to the movement in general. Uh, and then you have folks that were, again, you know, you have black power folks, uh, folks like Stokely Carmichael uh, and, and even Malcolm X. I said, look, man, you're not going far enough. You know, um, what King what King recognized is that is that Jesus shows us a kind of a third, a kind of a middle or third way. OK, that passive acquiescence is not the way uh, and that violent retaliation is not the way. But the way is nonviolent direct action. And uh, and so, you know, you see that if you look at, uh, you know, Garden of Gethsemane uh, and justice comes Jesus's way and Jesus and, and there's uh, Peter responds through violent retaliation. The other disciples respond through uh, through fleeing and, and, and acquiescence. And yet Jesus uh, reveals uh, the Messiah reveals a third way. He reveals uh, the way of nonviolent direct action, actually facing and confronting injustice head on, but doing it agopically and lovingly. And uh, and self sacrificially, and so that um, that that's the way uh, that that you know that's the way of the cross. That's the way of that Christians must live in this world. That uh, Jesus did it uh, for the joy that was set before him, and so he had his eyes set on uh, this great vision on the other side of the cross, and that kept him that kept him uh, they gave him the ability to despise the shame of the cross, to yeah. to see uh, the suffering that he endured as small in comparison to the weight of the glory that he would uh, attain on the other side. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, and so King uh, with his beloved community, I mean, with, the, with, the, with the vision of the beloved community and through the, uh, through the kind of the direction that he sees through King, through uh, Jesus's um, engagement at the cross, he, uh, he's able to sort of avoid the pitfalls um, that other people were, were going down. Um, and, uh, and yeah, you know, um, again, he, you know, he got a lot of pushback and um, and and folks, you know, for not being again, not being, um, you know, not being uh, violent or not or not taking up arms in uh, in 19 uh, in 1968, uh, when he goes to Memphis, uh, you know, King basically uh, he uh, this is, you know, this, this is basically he's he's. He's getting ready to uh, try to launch this poor people's campaign in Washington, D.C. Uh, he travels to Memphis in order to um, to support a group of 1300 sanitation workers who are striking for for better conditions and better wages uh, where, where they are there in Memphis. Um, and King and at the urging of James Lawson, he comes down and uh, and 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 basically what he didn't realize when he got there is that there was already an internal struggle within the community. Hmm. There was the sanitation workers and, and uh, James Lawson and others who were advocates of nonviolence. But then there were young uh, black militants, a group known as the invaders, who actually thought the nonviolence was complete bunk. They thought it was just it was they thought it was just, uh, uh, you know, a theology and a religion of lay down and stay down. Hmm. And so. Um, and so what they were looking for is they were looking for an opportunity to take up arms and start a riot. And, and, and when King came down and, um, and led a, a mass march in Memphis, his first mass march ended quickly in violence, only minutes after it had started, when some members of that invaders uh, group 
uh, took the occasion of a nonviolent march in order to uh, to start a riot. And they mm-hmm. broke windows and started, um, uh, you know, just started a riot, started chaos. And then quickly, uh, this crowd dispersed in the ensuing chaos. Uh, 16-year-old Larry Payne was shot dead by the police uh, in Memphis, lost his life. And so King was devastated by this. But I think that's a, that is a, um, that is a, that, that's an evidence. Um, this is just a, one example that, uh, that that kind of approach is doomed to failure. Mm. Um, King understood it was a matter of numbers anyway. said, look, you know, <laughs> I take up arms against the government. They've got more guns than we do. You yes. know, and, yes. Yes. it's a it's a losing situation from the start. Wait, the only way we can win is going the way of Jesus. You know? That's right. So one of the things that I didn't really start researching till recently was that King actually had to leave the National Baptist Convention, which is the largest black Protestant uh, denomination in the U.S. He left the NBC for the PNBC. Uh, which was newly formed. So can you talk a little bit about that departure from the National Baptist Convention? I don't know all the details about that, brother. I'm going I'm to I'm confess my, I'm going to confess my, I'm going to try to take the humble road here. <laughs> There's some people that know everything about everything about King. Right, right, right. You know, uh, those of us who are mere mortals, we know, we know a few things about some things about King, you know, and so I'm, I'm more so, you know, uh, you know, I know more about his theodicy and things that kind of feed into that. Uh, I do know that uh, that uh, there was some angst uh, about um, over the movement itself and over whether or not there was too much attention being sort of drawn toward King. And, and to be honest with you, and I'm not going to say it was just about egos, but there were some ego things going on and whether or not, um, you know, um, uh, every all the other preachers wanted King so wanted so much attention focused on him. I mean, whenever he would go somewhere. All of the cameras, all of the action, all of the attention, all the focus was on King, you know. Yeah. Yep. So that you know that that presented some problems for certain people, and and there were certain you know certain you know uh, intra denominational struggles, you know, and kind of political gamesmanship, and and so King ended up having to um, having to kind of go off and and form the Progressive National Baptist Convention. Actually, I was licensed in the Progressive National Baptist. Ah. Yes. <laughs> okay. I became a Presbyterian. I was licensed at uh, the New Shiloh Baptist Church of uh, Baltimore, Maryland, under Harold Carter Sr., who was kind of a protege of Dr. King, and wow. he the PNBC. And so when I, I was licensed to preach, I was licensed to preach in the PNBC. Well, look at that. Okay. Okay. Yes. Well, yeah, I mean, I think it just speaks to the fact that even black churches weren't all activistic in nature. Um, because I think we have this con- this conception that that well the black church quote unquote was all involved in the civil rights movement, but there were many even um, traditional black Baptists who were who, who were like pulling back the reins a little bit. Thought King was agitating too much. That's exactly right. Now, now I, I would say this. Now, there's a difference in the black church's response to that, okay, and white conservative churches' response to that. Okay, because oftentimes the black church, uh, the black church pastors and people who uh, that that didn't necessarily support the march, they were doing it out of a sense of self-preservation. Right. They were afraid that if you put these young people in harm's way, um, that we're going to, you know, we're we're going to we're going to lose some of our young people. They were just they were just fearful. Um, And 
Um, and 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 they they would have agreed with the ultimate aims that King was was seeking after. They they believed that that justice needed to come. They believed that uh, that the laws needed to change. They believed that integration needed to happen. Um, but um, they just didn't think that this was a way to do it. They they preferred uh, kind of gradualism and in some ways sort of acquiescing. Um, and so. Uh, you know, the, you know, the white conservatives, on the other hand, weren't on board with integration at all. Right. <laughs> they, they weren't yeah. on board with with justice at all. You know, they, they wanted the status quo. So uh, so so there. So I want to make that distinction. That's good. That's good. Let me do. Um, unfortunately, we've got to make this quick. But let, let me talk about uh, Coretta Scott King and black women. So in what sense, I know you, you, you did a very helpful qualifier, and as a student of history, I appreciate this. You don't know everything about everything about King. But in what sense was Coretta Scott King an activist in her own right? And what role did she play in Martin Luther King Jr.'s, her husband's activism? Yeah, yeah. That's a great question, man. So, uh, so Coretta Scott King uh, was really, was really uh, MLK's kind of theological um, partner, right? I mean, he could have never been who he was uh, if it had not been for Coretta King. And, um, and so she, so although, uh, although she um, became, you know, kind of a stay-at-home mom, uh, she was in constant, she was in, in, in constant communication with her husband, and they were talking about the movement, and they were talking strategy, you know? And so, um, you know, uh, the you know, the civil rights movement, in, in the leadership of the civil rights movement, uh, and this is where we got to recognize that, hey, man, even in a great movement, there can be simple dynamics. There was a there was a sense of an old boys club and there was a sense that um, uh, this kind of understanding that it would be the men who would be out front. OK. And um, and that kind of carried over from, you know, from kind of black Baptist preacher circles, uh, which were also kind of old boys clubs. Right. Um, but uh, but King understood from his upbringing that he needed to, that, uh, that that women had something powerful to say theologically, right? And and I, I say that because um, it was uh, it was it was his maternal grandmother, Jenny uh, uh, Celeste Park Williams. Okay, that was his so his his mother's mother, all right? Uh, that actually was the first person that uh, that really taught him the faith. That really. Um, um, uh, kind of led him through um, the you know uh, old you know Bible stories and and talked to him about the you know God delivering His people from the hands of the Egyptians and and so his first kind of um, picture of liberation uh, came from his maternal grandmother and also uh, at the knee of his of his mom uh, Alberta Williams King and so they um, so so he had he had he had he had strong women in his life. That uh, that really helped him to know again that women had powerful things to say, and so as he related to his wife Coretta, he didn't want someone that would be silent theologically. He wanted a theological partner, someone to share this journey with him, and someone that could challenge him uh, in, in times when he was wrong, and, and to and to and to point him forward. And that's exactly what Coretta was. I mean, Coretta uh, again was a great. Uh, mind in her own right um, was uh, was was King's in many ways. Uh, I would say his sort of theological equal and partner. And although she doesn't get the credit, 
uh, she was right here. She was right there with him all along the way. Amen. And 2018, we have high hopes for many things, and among which I hope is the year of the black woman, not just one year, but maybe a year that uh, catapults black woman, women into uh, the notoriety and the recognition that they have long deserved and is long overdue. And so we reflect on Coretta Scott King as well as Martin Luther King Jr., uh, Reverend Dr. Micah Edmondson, thank you so much for joining us. Always enlightening, brother. Uh, we appreciate you. If you're listening in, you can uh, follow him. He's he's on Twitter at uh, what's your Twitter handle there? At Micah Edmondson. At Micah Edmondson, M-I-K-A. And then he's also written a good bit for The Witness. So if you go to The Witness and do a search for Micah Edmondson, you can see his writings. His wife, uh, another strong black woman, Dr. Uh, Christina Edmondson, has also written for The Witness. They are a dynamic duo. And follow us on Twitter at underscore pass the mic, as well as following us at um, at The Witness BCC on Twitter or the website, thewitnessbcc.com. We appreciate you joining us, Brother Micah, and thank you all for listening. Thanks a lot. This episode was brought to you in part by The Compelled Podcast, which uses gripping, immersive storytelling to bring Christian testimonies to life. Listen to missionaries, addicts, martyrs, and more who have seen Jesus at work in unbelievable ways. Listen on your podcast app or compelledpodcast.com.